Hey everyone, it's the Monty Man, and you are about to take part in the experience, the strength, and the hope of this episode of the Take 12 Recovery Radio Show. Three, two, one, zero. Hey, you. Yeah, you. Come here for a minute. I want to talk to you. Against the wall, can't find peace of mind. Brain needs an overhaul. Bonehead brain. The views expressed on this broadcast of the Take 12 Recovery Radio Show are those of the co-host and guest and do not necessarily reflect those of our affiliates. The topics and opinions on today's show should not be considered as medical, psychological, or professional advice. Take 12 Radio is not affiliated with any particular 12-step fellowship. And now, here's your host, The Man, The Myth, The Legend, The Monty Man. Welcome aboard, all you great, fantastic, wonderful listeners. Uh, so grateful that you've tuned in to us, particularly right now where everybody's isolated and in their homes. What a perfect time to catch up on some of the greatest archives in recovery talk and positive music uh, really uh, broadcasting in the world today right here at Take 12 Recovery Radio. And uh, we are venturing out into part two of unpacking Bill Wilson's letter with our friend, Dr. Alan Berger. This is from the show that we did in 2015, a whole series on this called Step-by-Step Towards Emotional Sobriety. Now, listen, you can uh, download our shows and listen to our shows on uh, a lot of different platforms. All you have to do, if if you prefer Spotify, go to your Spotify account and search for Take 12, that's Take the number 12, not the word, the number 12. Take 12 Recovery Radio. Uh, If your uh, favorite podcasting uh, platform is uh, Apple Podcasts, do the same thing. Search for Take 12 Recovery Radio. iHeartRadio, search for Take 12 Recovery Radio. Uh, Also on Podomatic, same thing. Uh, And YouTube, simply search for Monty Meyer, M-O-N-T-Y-M-E-Y-E-R. But you can type in Take 12 Radio as well and uh, find us on YouTube there too. So download all of our shows. We just have hundreds and hundreds of archives uh, available for you. The best in what we believe is the best in recovery journalism right here at KHLT Recovery Broadcasting. All right, let's pick up the discussion with Dr. Alan Berger, author of 12 Stupid Things That Mess Up Recovery, as well as many other books, as we unpack Bill Wilson's letter, part two. so excited about this show that you've added to your lineup, Monty, is that we've got a chance to help people really look at how they deal with their emotions. Mm-hmm. As you know, those of us that are, you know, addict, alcoholic, I mean, we haven't dealt well with our feelings. In fact, I look back and I can tell, you know, that, or I know from my experience that I drank and used other drugs because I didn't want to feel what I was feeling. And I didn't want to feel what I was feeling because I didn't know how to cope with it. I had no idea how to deal with my emotions. And, And listen, I had too much false pride to ask anybody for help. So you put those things, two things together, I was a sitting duck for, for my addiction. Yeah. 
Yeah, and, and, and let me let me share this really really quick. I was thinking about this earlier today about uh, sharing this on the show, and I've shared it before uh, with the listeners. But uh, in case anybody is is new to this, one of the, one of the things that I discovered uh, in working these twelve steps and applying and implementing these these spiritual principles into my life uh, was that I was in many ways like like Bill uh, Wilson, I, I was addicted to acceptance. Acceptance not of God, uh, but of other people. Wow. It yeah. was it was. I had a friend, and and I've lost this friend because of this. And maybe someday uh, that friendship will will reconcile. But but uh, we were friends for like twenty five years, and I was so attached to this poor guy that if I had said. Uh, hey, buddy, uh, why don't Saturday, why don't we uh, you throw some beers in the cooler and go to the beach? And he said, well, that sounds like a good idea. Well, then Saturday would come. That's all that was said. And I'd, I'd have the cooler full of beer. I had sandwiches and chips. The car was loaded up. I showed up at his apartment, and he wasn't there. And I was destroyed. Yeah, yeah, you were really hurt. Right? Really, really hurt. And I would go out, much like the codependent wife that might, or husband that might go out looking for a spouse, checking out all the bars. I'd search everywhere for that guy. And when I found him, I gave him what for, man? Right. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, you felt betrayed. I Absolutely. Mean, that's what happens. because and, and listen, it's such a great story. And I, you know, when I really look at how I've reacted in friendships, I had... I've reacted very similar. You see, I've made claims and demands on people. Yeah. What we're going to call that later on is we have unenforceable rules on how people are supposed to behave mm. so that we feel okay. And until we get honest about those things, and that's one of the exciting things about what we're doing in this show, is we're going to help people learn how to take an emotional inventory and identify the unenforceable rules and the addiction to acceptance, as you call it, I like to think of it as emotional dependency, yes. that lies underneath those rules so we can help people unhook those so they can have better relationships with other people. That we don't go around demanding people do things our way for us to be okay. That we can really learn to live and let live. And that's what emotional sobriety is all about, honey. And that is such good news, man, that we can be free from the bondage of that junk. Yep, that's what it is. It's being free from the bondage of that junk of self, of these demands that we place on other people to behave a certain way so we feel okay. Mm. One of the things I talk a lot about with people is that the more that I learn to soothe myself and regulate my own emotions, the less I need to regulate you and control you and have you behave a certain way. Because I'm taking care of myself instead of trying to manipulate you to do for me what I can't do for myself. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the challenge here for all of us that are trying to find a way to walk this uh, path of recovery. Uh, boy, and, 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 and you know, it is, uh, somebody uh, uh, Facebooked me the other day, they said, oh man, my life is so full of problems, I'm gonna, you know, and I've been there. I, I can, I can, I can do that. Um, but something hit me. Something my my good old dad used to tell me all the time, Monty. There's no such things as problems. There's just challenges and opportunities, buddy. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, that's that's a great great thing that your dad shared with you. You know, the way yeah. we talk about it a lot is as therapists is that the problem is never the problem. You see. The problem is, is how we're coping with the situation. Another way to say it, Monty, is that our contentment, our serenity, our peace of mind, our happiness depends on our relationship to what is happening to our life, to the experience we're having, not the experience itself. So it's how we deal with these things that become so important. And that's the other thing about this show that you and I are doing. I, I know what we're going to be able to do is bring some ideas to people that are going to help them cope much better with all of the challenges that they're going to be facing in their life and in their recovery. Uh, here, here to that. Here, here to that. Well, um, 
we, we've kind of entitled this. Well, the show as a whole is entitled Step uh, by Step Towards Emotional Sobriety. Uh, but the topic right now that we're looking at is unpacking uh, Bill W.'s letter, dot, dot, dot. Explain that a little bit before we look, listen to our first soundbite. Well, as I talked about in our first show, when I look back and try to research this whole concept of emotional sobriety, see who was talking about it. Well, Bill Wilson was the first person that I could find that mentioned it. And it was mentioned in a letter that he wrote to a depressed fellow AA member in 1956. Well, that letter became published in the AA Grapevine under the title Emotional Sobriety, The Next Frontier. In this letter, in this letter, Bill mentioned the term emotional sobriety. Now, as I mentioned to you last time, Monty, I think he, he had to be talking about this in meetings up to that point. But this is the first place I could find it written about anywhere. So that's what we're going to be doing. Since Bill, you know, in my opinion, did so much work on himself. He was 21 years sober when he wrote that letter. In it, we're going to find all of these little jewels and gems, man, about what he learned about himself and what he learned about his emotions and his relationship to others that helped him start to have that experience of emotional sobriety in his life. So last time, we took a few segments of that letter, and we unpacked them. We played them for the listeners. My good friend Ashton Smith is the one recorded those for us. And um, we talked about what was going on, some of what our impressions were. Well, we're going to continue that this week and next week and maybe one week after that until we've gone through the whole letter. And then we're going to start to go into looking at how therapists have talked about this, how some of the um, spiritual, you know, uh, mm-hmm. approaches to dealing with these things. I mean, the show is going to go in so many exciting directions, but this is going to lay our foundation. All right. Well, here is our uh, first soundbite for this week, unpacking Bill uh, W.'s letter, uh, Emotional Sobriety. Even then, as we hew away, peace and joy may still elude us. That's the place so many AA oldsters have come to, and it's a hell of a spot, literally. How shall our unconscious, from which so many of our fears, compulsions, and phony aspirations still stream, be brought into line with what we actually believe, know, and want. How to convince our dumb, raging, and hidden Mr. Hyde becomes our main task. (laughs) Our dumb, raging, and hidden Mr. Hyde. (laughs) Not so hidden sometimes. No. (laughs) I I don't know about yours, but mine sure rears his ugly head. And it's, it's... People don't have to search hard. No. That I'm pretty much in my raging Mr. Hyde. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> but let, let's set this up a little bit. So last week, soundbite we listened to before that, I'm just going to read it real quick so that listeners can kind of see the segue that Bill made here. So yeah. last week, the soundbite we last listened to was how to translate, this is what Bill said, how to translate a right mental conviction into a right emotional result and so into easy, happy, and good living. Well, that's not only the neurotics problem, it's the problem of life itself for all of us who've got to the point of real willingness to you to write principles in all our affairs. So that's what led to this part. So what Bill talks about, you know, as we you away, this whole thing of emotional sobriety still eludes us. And he says it's a heck of a place for us, right? A hell of a spot, literally. Yeah. Now, he goes into this, and this is the part I really want to underscore. He says, how shall our unconscious from which so many of our fears, compulsions, and phony aspirations still stream, be brought into line with what we actually believe, know, and want. And then he says that final line that you laughed at, and I did too, how to convince our dumb and raging hidden and hidden Mr. Hyde becomes our main task. Well, let, let's unpack this a minute. And I want to go to this part about the unconscious. You see, it was Freud that first talked about this a whole idea that we possess an unconscious. Now, not everybody agrees with that idea, but there's no doubt that all of us have had experiences where there's things going on inside of us that are outside of our awareness 
that are having a major influence on our behavior. Well, that was Freud's discovery, that there's things going on that we're not aware of that are having a powerful impact on our life. Mm -hmm. So Bill, through his therapy, because he was in therapy with Dr. Harry Tebow, who was also a psychoanalytic therapist, started to look at, well, where, what was going on inside of his unconscious that drove some of Bill's behavior? Well, this is what he found, is that his unconscious was filled with fear. Now, what was he afraid of is the question we have to ask, Marty. What was it that was driving Bill? And very much like you've observed in your life and that I share that I've observed in mine, is Bill was afraid that he wasn't going to be accepted, that he wasn't going to be loved, and that he wasn't going to belong. Yes. And that fear drove him. He talked about these compulsions and phony aspirations. Well, the compulsion was is that he had to have people like him. So he did whatever he believed he would have to do to get their acceptance, to get their approval to be long. The phony aspirations he talked about is that in his mind, just like in our mind, we all believe that we have to live up to an idealized self to be accepted and to belong and to be loved. So that's a phony aspiration, because this idealized self is based on perfectionism. Now, I don't mean that we are perfect. Uh, what I mean is that we think we have to be perfect. And how you think you have to be perfect is going to be different than how I think I have to be perfect. But when we set this idealized self as our goal in our life, to be loved and accepted, then we are driven to be like that no matter what. And there's a difference. Uh, is there, let me ask you a question real quick. Yeah. There, is it, there is a difference between striving to be better to st even striving to be more uh, 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 spiritual, more godlike. Yes. There's a difference between uh, having that desire to improve and desiring perfection. Oh, yes, yes. My mentor, Dr. Kentler, used to say, there's nothing wrong with even striving to be perfect as long as you don't ever believe you can pull it off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because... because <laughs> you know, it's yeah. that whole idea. But I like what you're saying better because... When I hear that word perfection, it sucks me in. So for me, there is, there, yes, you know, look, we strive for progress, right, not perfection. That's why Bill and, and Dr. Bob had to put that in, because they knew that we were going to take that and try to work this program perfectly. We were going to do the same thing with the principles of recovery, uh, principles of the 12 steps, that we did with this idealized self. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, because, Isn't that amazing that they yes. that? See, to me, as a psychologist, when I see that connection, Monty, I just get, I get goosebumps. You know, it's it's like it's like my friend, my story of my friend. Okay, I'm going to seek after you. I'm going to chase you down. I am going to make you like me. Okay, I'm going to chase down these 12 steps. Yeah. I'm going to memorize every word in that book. I'm going to go to 90 meetings in not 90 days. I'm going to go 90 meetings in 12 days, and I'm going to do this thing so perfectly that you are going to be thankful that you know me because I've improved so much. And the thing is, we are unable, left to our own devices, to do that. We can't do that. Yeah, no, we do that. You know, that, that kind of flight into health, right? That oh, my God. flight gosh. into recovery. Yeah. So strong. And, you know, that's why I love when I was reminded by my sponsor who said, hey, Al, it's not a sprint. This is a marathon. <laughs> Slow down. Yeah. <laughs> you got a long way to go. And, and so it's, you know, there's more is going to be revealed to you. And thank God it was. And, and thank God it was revealed to Bill. So as we're unpacking this, you can see this is what Bill realized, is that unconsciously he was driven to get everybody to like him. Now, we're going to find out what strategy he took, you know, because there's different ways that we interact with, with other people to try to secure their love and acceptance and to belong in that relationship. So what he said is that 
what can we do to deal with these unconscious things so that they're more brought into line with what we actually believe, know, and want? Hmm. See, in recovery, we start to realize that it's not about us, right? right. We start and... to get right-sized in some way, and that it's not about us getting everything we want to be okay. It's about learning how to be in a, in a healthy relationship to others and to our circumstances, right? So he says we have this idea that somehow instead of getting life to fit into our demands, right, into our expectations, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that we have to fit. But how do we do this? How do we really figure this out? And that's when he brings up this, well, how do we convince our dumb, raging, and hidden Mr. Hyde? Because that's it. See, there's a part of each and every one of us that have this demand, Monty, that make this claim that you should do what I want you to do so that I can feel okay. And the more recovery we get, the more honest we can become about that. You know, I tell everybody, the healthier I become, the more screwed up I know I am. <laughs> right, let me let me ask you this. Wait, it's a weird paradox. It is a weird paradox. Uh, a question for you, Doctor Berger is is uh, okay. We pursue this, um, don't you think? Because at just like the bag of dope at one time gave us that first rush, or that first uh, drink we had did whatever it did do, and we can never catch it up with it again. We chase after the same because at one time there was a payoff. There, there, there was something that triggered us into feeling good about ourselves because somebody else approved yeah. of us, and and now we can't find that. Yeah. Well, let's take that even deeper because it's a great question. So, what is underlying this? Well, look, we have to. We are so dependent on our parents' care mm. and love and support. When we're born into this world, as you know, I'm a new father. Yeah. And while Maddie is amazing in what she's able to do, she's now eight weeks and and a couple days old. I mean, it's phenomenal for me to see this child unfolding, right? Yeah. Just before my eye. But if somehow, God forbid, that she was now abandoned and there were no adults in her life, she couldn't survive. That's right. So we, as a species, have the longest period of, of infant development or infant dependency than any other species on this planet. That is true. I mean, there's a lot of things that our parents need to communicate to us to, for us to be able to make it in this world. And, you know, you and I know it's never enough, right? Right, They do right. the best they can. But what I'm saying is, so when we're born, that dependency on our parents is so powerful. Mm. And when we get anxious when we're infants that we're not going to be loved and accepted by our parents, right. it creates a tremendous anxiety, Monty. <sighs> this, this, this therapist, this brilliant psychoanalyst, her name was Dr. Karen Hornig. She called it the basic anxiety. We could call it the first anxiety we had is that we are not going to be loved and accepted. And when that anxiety was experienced, we started to search for a solution to it. And that's why we adopted that idealized self. See, that was going to be our fix, man. Mm -hmm. If I became the way that I think I should be, if somehow I can pull this off, then I'm going to guarantee that I'm going to get love and acceptance. And then when it doesn't work, then we try to demand other people pay attention and, and, and give us what we want, because this is the solution. This is what we thought was going to work. So now it must work. It's like we take that square peg, and we are going to pound it into that round hole, yeah. no matter what. Yeah. yeah. So that's where this thing starts. So uh. early on, you're right. The payoff was that as soon as I tried to become the self that I thought I should be, the false self, I got hooked into that idea. And until I bring that into my consciousness and start to look at it and start to really, really unravel it, I cannot unhook these emotional dependencies that spring forth from that whole operation 
that happened very early. I'm talking about the first five years of life, Monty. Yeah. That we figured this out in the first five years of life. Now, here's the brilliance of Freud. He said, whatever happened in our unconscious was atemporal, meaning that as we matured in age, unless we brought this stuff into our consciousness, it wouldn't mature. Ah. Here we are as adults, and we've got all of these very, right, these these demands that yeah. are very, yeah. very much like, what are we called? The king baby, right? Yep, yep. You've heard that yep. term before. Absolutely. For us. And that's why, you see, because these things that happened went into our unconscious, and they didn't change as we matured. Hmm. And, and so once again, once again, we revisit uh, step four in the 12 by 12 when it talks about misdirected instincts. I mean, it all comes together because what yeah. God set up yeah. for good, you know, in yeah. the God-given instincts, it doesn't mature and it gets thwarted. Yes. Now we're, now we're all screwed up. Oh, man, it makes so right. much sense, man. Because, you know, let's just build on that a little bit. Let's help people understand it. Yeah. Wanting other people to like us and, and to be accepted is okay. Yeah, sure. As long as we can hold on to ourselves and keep that in balance. But when it just becomes driven, see, that's when now what was a God-given instinct now becomes twisted, corrupted. Because now we want everyone to be like that because Mm -hmm. of our anxiety. Mm -hmm. This is what emotional sobriety is. It's learning how to be connected in a relationship without losing yourself. It's learning how to have a relationship where you can keep where you can add yourself so that you are not so dependent on the other person to be yeah. okay. Yeah. Yeah. Now, husband, I mean, that's so exciting. I mean, when I discovered this stuff, I mean, for me, it opened up so many important doors in my recovery because it helped me see where I could continue to grow along spiritual lines on what I needed to do to learn to live and let live. Because that's very much a spiritual concept, this learning to live and let live. Yeah, yeah. Ah, oh, good stuff. All right, here's soundbite. That's exciting stuff, man. I mean, what we just talked about is so important. It, it is, and it's so cool because it makes so much sense. And it just kind of it just comes together. And, and here's the great news, listeners, is that you can go back and just slide the play slider over and listen to this piece again. Say, wait a minute, I didn't catch that. Just slide that thing over and listen to it again. Of course, you can listen to uh, shows at the bottom of the page. You can listen to last week's show as well. Are you ready for soundbite number two? No, I am. I think it's great you said that, Monty, because if if you're new to these ideas, they may sound a bit confusing to you. Sure. And sometimes it helps to play them over several times. I mean, I've got a lot of audio CDs and... Some of my clients say, you know, I've li- I'll listen to that one track you have about 10 times before I really understand it. But that's what's great about what we're doing. Yeah, play this over until you can really understand. And even more than that, don't just get it intellectually, but try to apply it to your life and see how does this fit for me? How am I doing that in my life today? Yeah, yeah. And, and, so let's and, do the next soundbite. Okay, let's do go it. For it. Here we go. I've recently come to believe that this can be achieved. I believe so because I begin to see many benighted ones, folks like you and me, commencing to get results. Last autumn, depression, having no really rational cause at all, almost took me to the cleaners. I began to be scared that I was in for another long chronic spell. Considering the grief I've had with depressions, it wasn't a bright prospect. I'll bet. <laughs> yeah, no question about it. Huh? You know, we all know that people struggled with this, and that's why he really felt like he wanted to share with this, you know, fellow member who was struggling with depression. Mm-hmm. Now, the first message in this segment is that he's saying that there is hope for us. You know, that we he's really come to believe that we can achieve this emotional sobriety. He begins to see people figuring this out in their lives. And um, as we know, Bill depression was was terrible. It was really crippling to him at several points in his recovery. Now, I, I want to point this out to listeners, and I'm not against anxiety medication, but I just want to share the other side of this, because if you're so depressed and you can't get out of bed, you might need some help. 
Sure. But if your depression is mild or maybe even moderate, what Bill is showing us is that depression can motivate us to look deep within. You know, when I was in graduate school, there's a test called the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory. It was a test developed in the uh, early parts of the 1900s um, to help therapists understand um, the and diagnose people, and more importantly, to try to predict who's going to do well in treatment and who's not. Now, the two scales on the MMPI that show that somebody is going to do well are depression and anxiety. Hmm. Now, what does that mean? It means when we're hurting, we're motivated. You see, when we let ourselves feel the pain, that pain can be a true gift if it's not paralyzing us. It can help us start to dig in and look at these things that we need to face about ourselves. Yeah. That's what Bill did with his depression. He didn't medicate it. He didn't run away from it. What he did is he embraced it, and he turned to his spiritual teachers and asked for help. He turned to a therapist and asked for help. He turned to the fellowship and to the steps to get help. And that's what we need to do is we need to take our pain and our suffering and turn to each other to begin to heal it. You can't do this alone. And what Bill is going to share with us is all of the great things he learned about what caused his depression from that journey, from turning to others for help. And that goes against what we've all done, Monty, right? That defiant self-reliance that we have has sent so many of us to the grave. And and I want to encourage uh, people that are listening. we, We have a lot of people... Uh, that come from a, a faith-based background that li- to listen to our shows, and I want to, I want to, I want to encourage you folks uh, with something here because, you know, we have this thing called contempt prior to investigation, right, Doctor Allen <laughs> Berger? I mean, we we have these things. That, I don't want to listen to that. Well, listen, I, I'm going to tell you something for those of you who come from a faith-based background. This does not fly in the face of anything that you believe. I, I really believe that. I think of biblically speaking, I think in some of the great spiritual writings that are out there, that, that when you take this stuff that we're talking about and you look at it close enough and you, spe- you seek out a solution with this thing, you will find that it meshes with each other perfectly. That's, that's my take on it. Well, I think that's such an important thing because, you know, I don't want to alienate anybody. Like I said at the beginning of the last uh, week's show, is that I'm going to be the psychological voice here, and I'm going to trust you to bring in the spiritual part of this and all of our to address the faith-based listeners that we have, because that's your strength in this, Monty, is to be able to do that. And, And I really believe that everything I say is very much compatible yes. with whatever path you're on. It doesn't matter is that what Bill was identifying up for us were some truths, truths about the human experience, truths about how we get in trouble in our relationships. And those of you that have some tools from your faith to deal with this, well, all the better. You're going to learn how to apply them. And in and, and what areas you need to apply them. So we're very excited about that. Itself. Yeah, and, be, and you know, some of this stuff that you're talking about, it makes some of the things I believe spiritually, it's like, wow, that's why that makes so much sense. And and that's cool to discover things like that. Yeah. Um, I got a question about medication for you really quick. And then we got to take a break and we'll come back and listen to our other two sound bites. Um you said something about uh, a medication, and it always uh, gets, gets me interested. When somebody is new into recovery, um, isn't it just natural for most people that are still hungover or they're still reeling from the meth uh, withdrawal and everything else to uh, appear to be clinically depressed and maybe they're not? Yeah, yeah. That's, see, that's a great point you're making. Is that is that 
as you know and I know, so many people coming into the program today are being diagnosed as bipolar or depressed or having anxiety disorders. And then the psychiatrists are are giving them all of these medications, some of which are very dangerous for us. Yeah. If they're addictive medications like Xanax or Valium that people are often given for their anxiety, that can be terrible for those of us that are addicts. So, you know, you're bringing up a very good point. Are those feelings natural in the beginning of recovery? Yes, they are. And what I would encourage you to do is not to put a label on yourself until until you've got somewhere between six months and a year clean. Because by that time, then you're going to know what the baseline is really like for yourself. And now that's not going to, you know, after a couple years, you know, is really a good mark. But at six months or a year, you're going to know if you need some additional help. Now, a lot of the antidepressant medication out there is not a threat to those of us in recovery. Because it's not addicting. Mm-hmm. No, these things mm-hmm. are acting on certain neurotransmitters like serotonin and other transmitters available, and they don't present the problem to us that things like major tranquilizers or Valiums do, or Valium does. So, you know, I would encourage to be open-minded about this, but I would also say you are much more capable in dealing with your depression and anxiety than you've ever realized. You see, because our first thing was to turn to drugs for a solution, we sold ourselves short money. Mm-hmm. really did. We mm-hmm. never gave ourselves a chance to learn how to deal with these feelings. So, of course, we have no tools. But if you allow yourself to feel the pain and the discomfort and you turn to others for help, you start to develop some new coping mechanisms. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, good word, good word. Okay. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, more with Dr. Allen Berger, step-by-step towards emotional sobriety. Hey, check it out. The best in recovery talk and positive music radio is now available on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, YouTube, and Podomatic. Simply visit any of these platforms and search for Take 12 Recovery Radio. Listen and download hundreds of our shows for fun and for free. Also available at Take12Radio.com. Alrighty, welcome back. Thank you, Cameron. Hey, listen, let's join Dr. Berger and myself as we pick up this discussion on unpacking Bill Wilson's letter, part two. Okay, uh, we've got a third sound bite. You ready? I'm ready. All right, here we go. I kept asking myself, why can't the 12 steps work to release depression? By the hour, I stared at the St. Francis prayer. It's better to comfort than to be comforted. Here was the formula, all right. But why didn't it work? Good question. Yeah. Well, as we know, you know, Bill took a lot of spiritual direction, and uh, he was a big fan of St. Francis. And um, St. Francis talked about this. It's better to comfort than to be comforted. Now, what I'm going to ask our listeners to do is to just bookmark that, because later on, as we hear more and more from Bill in terms of what he learned, that's going to make sense to them in a very different way. Now, normally we think about that. It's better to comfort others than to be comforted ourselves, right? That's the typical way that we would interpret what St. Francis said. Well, by the end of our discussion with Bill's letter, I'm going to propose another way of understanding that. So what I say is that bookmark that. We're going to come back to that. It is the formula, all right, and we're going to talk about why it didn't work, and we're going to talk about this formula from a new perspective that I'm going to suggest later on. So why don't we do this now, Monty? If we can, can we go to the other soundbite, and then yes. we'll just use that for the rest of the show. All right, here we go. Suddenly, I realized what the matter was. My basic flaw had always been dependence almost absolute dependence on people or circumstances to supply me with prestige, security, and the like. Failing to get these things according to my perfectionistic dreams and specifications, I had fought for them. And when defeat came, so did my depression. Oh, boy, I'm right there with you, Bill. (laughs) 
Well, he's got it, doesn't he? He's, he's got it, man. That And, you know, I, I, I mean, I had no idea that was going on at the time. I just thought everybody else was just not sensitive enough. <laughs> that's right, right. See, that's what we do, right? Yeah. That makes, that makes us okay and everybody else wrong. That's right. I, I mean, when we think about it that way, of course it is. But what an insight. I mean, here he is. So now he's just shared to us what he learned about what was causing his depression. So let's take a look at this, and let's, as we're doing, try to unpack this. So he talks about his basic flaw. Now, this is important because this ties into the steps, and as you said in step four, when we're starting to look at ourselves and trying to understand, well, what has been our basic flaw? And most of us that work the fourth step will identify that the self keeps showing up. And I think that that's a very common experience early in recovery. Well, when you go back later on, and hopefully when you do the emotional inventory that we're going to encourage you to do at some time, well, you're going to see that how self was connected to all, to showing up all the time, was that it was because we had this basic flaw that we were emotionally dependent on other people or circumstances, as Bill said, to supply us with prestige, security, and the like. So we were, as you mentioned, addicted to acceptance. We were addicted to people behaving a certain way in order to validate us, Marty. Yeah. And that's, that is a very powerful thing, because when, when that happens, when we are looking to other people to validate us, We've taken our emotional center of gravity from within, that lies within us, and we've put it in other people. So now people and circumstances control how we feel. We've lost control. Mm. And and, and the truth, I mean, if it is true, for instance, that if you're powerless, left to your own devices, and I'm powerless, left to my own devices. Zero plus zero is zero, right? Yeah. So if I go into a meeting and everybody's powerless and I'm powerless, it doesn't matter if the meeting's two people or 200. If I'm trying to get my uh, uh, the acceptance bug fed, if I'm trying to stay sober, if I'm trying to stay clean, going to meetings to get you to look at me in a way I want you to look at it's not going to work. Yeah. It's a fine line here, isn't it? Yeah. Because, see, what I want to share is that early on, for me, my sponsors, the fact that my sponsor had faith in me allowed me to borrow from him what I couldn't give to myself. Mm. The fact that he saw something in me that I couldn't see in myself yet gave me a chance to discover these things about myself. Now, I think left to my own devices, I, I wouldn't have made it money if, if I didn't allow somebody in my life like that. Sure. And if I didn't trust him, like, and I didn't trust anybody up to that point, but for some reason, because Tom, who's my sponsor, was not playing any games because he was open and vulnerable and authentic himself, I was able to trust that. You see, I had never witnessed that in another human being to the degree that I saw it in Tom. Mm -hmm. And so his openness started to crack me open, at least enough where I could trust him. And so when he saw in me something I couldn't see in myself, I needed that. You know, just like little Maddie needs, you know, Jess and I to love her right now. Right. She can't do that. And I needed that from my sponsor. But what I also got from Tom was that he knew that his faith in me wasn't going to be enough. Right. And it had to inspire a journey in me, right? Right. It had to inspire me in such a way where I would do the work and stuff to discover the things I needed to discover about myself, that I had to eventually develop faith in myself. So that's the kind of relationship I had with them. So do we need that early on in recovery? I am yes. a true believer of it. Yes. Just but like if it's healthy. If it's healthy, Monty. If it's healthy. What it does 
it helps you stand on your own two feet. So, so just like your daughter needs you right now, and as a father, just like as your sponsor was to you in a way, yeah. you're going to teach her to be able to 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 stand on her own two feet, to be able to uh, have a, a, a spiritual path, to be able to make right choices, to do all these things. And you're going to equip her with certain tools. And uh, children that don't have that don't learn basic life skills and they become a mess, just like the newcomer who is being guided by somebody who doesn't have that to show or give them, they're a mess. Well, you're right. See, so that's why when we're told, pick a sponsor who has something that you want in your life. Pick a sponsor to whom you're attracted to, but hopefully you're attracted to the right thing. Not somebody who's just slick and cool and saying all the right things, but somebody who's walking like they're talking. Somebody who's really, really struggling to put this program together, not somebody who looks perfect, because that's that's a bunch of yeah, um, that's you know that's a facade. Oh, yeah, that's, it's, yeah. yeah, it's 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 that's that's going back to the false self again. That's looking for somebody to help us learn how to pull off our false self. That's not going to lead us out of this this mm-hmm. terrible disease mm-hmm. that we're that has destroyed our lives. What's going to help us is finding somebody who is open, who is vulnerable, who is authentic, who is not trying to be perfect. They are learning from their mistakes. They are willing to talk about their mistakes. They're willing to see who they're not yet. See, that's the person I want in my life, Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. that person is going to encourage me to be the best in myself. And that person will probably tell us at some point, look at I'm not your higher power. <laughs> yeah. right uh, on. And, and, and if they act like they are, we're in deep weeds. And I think let me let me let me let me mention this. We talk about altruism in our twelve step fellowships, particularly in the in uh, in the mothership in Alcoholics Anonymous. We talk about that a lot. But don't you think that there is kind of a danger that happens there. As soon as we, we meet each other on an altruistic plane, it is it is typical for us to become dependent on somebody, especially if you're new, like your daughter's dependent on you and your wife. Okay. If we're not weaned off of that, then we stay dependent on, on people. And there's where I find people say make statements like this. I mean, after years of being in, in the fellowship, Man, if I don't get to a meeting today, I'm going to drink. 25 years in the thing. Because they're dependent. They're meeting dependent. They're people dependent. They don't have the tools to say, you know what? If the meeting burned down, I can stay sober today. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Ouch. Yeah, right on, man. No, you're right. (sighs) See, this is where this all, this becomes so important. Now, Bill mentioned here also, and let's get this before our show is over, because we're going to be going into some more of these sound bites next time, but I want to make sure we really cover this one thoroughly. He said, failing to get these things according to my perfectionist dreams and specifications. So let me (laughs) talk about where those come from. So let's go back to that idealized self I mentioned, that false self that developed. Yeah. But when we adopted that solution in our life, right? When we made that decision that this is who I need to be in order to be okay, it was an absolute decision, Monty. You see, the world at that moment became a black and white world. So we were either being who we thought we should be or we were not. There was no gray zones. You were either being the self that you thought that you should be to be okay, mm. or you were being the self that you thought was not going to get you love and acceptance. You were going to be so, one or the other. You were one or the other. And see, and that's the important thing. So that's when he says, according to my professionist dreams and specifications, well, the false self is where these specifications come from. The false self is what drives us to have all of these rules about life. 
So I want our listeners to think about the specification as rules we generate that tell us who we should be and how others should be towards us. Hmm. And these become black and white. There are no gray in them. You know, I tell everybody, as soon as I admitted how unreasonable I was, I became a lot more reasonable. (laughs) 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 As soon as I became willing to admit how demanding I was, I became a lot less demanding. As soon as I became honest about the claims that I made on you and how we're supposed to behave, I had a lot fewer claims. Well, well, now you're 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 looking at him in the mirror, man. Now you're looking at him face to face. I, I mean, right. and and that demands some kind of response. Uh, That's right. Let, let me ask: Do you find, and in the circles that I travel in, on the spiritual end of it, do you find that people of faith have a tendency to think that if they allow themselves to stop thinking black and white, that they they think that they're compromising their faith and values? I think so. Yeah, me too. I, I think so. See, I, I think it's very easy to fuse our false self in with our concept of our belief or our faith. I agree. And then when we tried it, when we do it, it's just like those people in the program that use the program to try to now to be perfect. Mm-hmm. Where they couldn't pull it off mm-hmm. before, they think now, armed with these powerful spiritual tools, I'm going to be able to do what I couldn't do before. Well, you know, taking the dirty shoe off one foot and putting it on the other doesn't get rid of the dirty shoe. Yeah, It's still a dirty shoe. It's yeah. not going to work whether it's on your right foot or your left foot. you got to get rid of the shoe. you got to take it off, and you got to put it in a machine and wash it and clean it, and then you can put it back on. But you've got to, you just can't do the same thing and expect different results, right? Right. I say this, I say it all the time. It's not we're just expecting different results. The truth of it is, we're a little bit crazier than that. We expect better results. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we do the same thing and come out because it's going to be better. That's so we're right. more insane than we thought we were. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you know, and I, I, I asked that question because I I struggled with this in my my early recovery. Uh, this whole idea of putting aside my old ideas and all of them, you know, and my sponsor says, I'm not asking you to throw them out. I'm asking you to give them to me temporarily. <laughs> yeah, set them aside for yeah, a while. Set them aside for a while. Um, because you may be exactly right on the money with some of them. But what if, but what if you're not? And yeah. man, I fought that because I knew my relationship with God was correct. I knew that to the core of my being, but I knew it so much to the core of my being, I wasn't willing to be even flexible in any other area. And he really had to work with me. Now, later on, some of those things, I got to have some of those things back, and and I was right. But more than I wanted to admit, I had all sorts of weird thinking that was surrounded around, it's all about money. And, yep. and, and I have. I think, and yeah, you, listen, what you're t- talking about, it's it's a very powerful process in it. And I think it is. some other people have discovered some things a little different than you. Some people discovered that the way they thought about God was very, very um, black and white and, and was um, prohibitive. It wasn't helping them be, live a better life, it was really interfering. And some people have changed their concept of yeah. God in some very powerful ways. I'm sure you've seen that as well. Absolutely. Well, and I have to I have to tell you, there are certain, there's, well, actually not just some, there's a whole bunch of things in my relationship with God today that are not the same as when I came in. And I think if they were, then I haven't grown. Yes, there you go. There you go. That's a sign of it, isn't it? That that yeah. matures too, doesn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Ah, oh, this is good stuff. And, and that's what we're going to see. And, and, and what we're going to also see is that there's a way that your relationship with God, you know, your higher powers, you understand it, can support your emotional sobriety. But there's also a way that you can use your relationship with your higher power to avoid life. 
and yeah. to pull off what you were trying to pull off with your false self, and it's not going to work any better than than it did before. And I, I think there's no better example biblically than the Pharisees. You know, this religiosity thing that that they got caught up in. Uh, oh my gosh, you know, and I see this, isn't it funny? You know, we talk about how, um, our mainstream 12 step fellowships aren't religious, they're spiritual. And I got to tell you, sometimes they're the most religious thing I've ever seen. (laughs) My goodness. I am telling you, I asked somebody one time, uh, Dr. Berger, I said, I said, what is it about organized religion you don't like? I like to play sometimes. And I'm, you know, you know me, I'm, I'm kind of naughty. I like, I like to have fun with people. And I said, what is it about organized religion you don't like? He said, well, I don't like that they're asking, you're always asking for money. And you got a guy yeah. behind a pulpit telling you what to do. And then he says, this is the only book you can live by. And the, the lighting candles and the pomp and circumstance and, and on and on it goes. And I said, really? Sounds like an AA meeting to me. Yeah. You know, it sounds like a speaker meeting, doesn't it? And, 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 <laughs> yeah, that's he said, true. You know, I never thought. Well, of listen it. to this. Let's just share this before <laughs> we end this show today, because this yeah. is a powerful show we've had. But you know, AA did, had a group of people come in to identify threats in the future to Alcoholics Anonymous, so that they could be proactive and address these things. The the World Service Office and, did. Yeah, World Service Office okay. did this, and uh, it's what organizations do at times to say that hey. You know, we're a viable organization, and what might be uh, a threat to us in the future? Mm. Well, it wasn't something that was going on in society that these folks identified as the biggest threat. The biggest threat to Alcoholics Anonymous was from within AA itself. I believe that. It was from the ultra-conservative, very, very rigid approach, fundamentalist approach to the program. And that's what this group identified as the biggest threat, that that would then polarize people and that would start to to really deteriorate in terms of the process that's involved, right? And Bill knew that, right? That's why Bill said, we have no opinion on outside issues. You know, we don't do that. We, we try, we are there, and what's our primary purpose, Right to be yeah. there for each other, right, and for the group and the fellowship, and to be able to support each other. And it was brilliant, the traditions that Bill came up with, to try to guard us against that very thing. Oh, man. You, you know that, it just flashed back, I, I watched a, uh, and I know we got to close, but I, I watched, uh, what was it, The Waltons, years ago. Huh? And um, the pastor at, at the parish there in wherever that was that they lived, um, was burning all these books. I mean, there was just this big old fire and had the whole town up in an uproar and they're burning books right and left. And they were things like, you know, the, the, the communist manifesto and pornography and all that. And, uh, one, one of the Waltons, uh, I think it was the dad walked over and looked in the pile and pulled a book out and shaked it off. And it was the Bible. Wow, that hit me hard, man. I thought we have got to be, you know, this is a fragile thing, this recovery, isn't it? We got to be right. careful. No, no, yeah. no, we've got to be careful. So, so let's just summarize the shows for our listeners here. Bill yeah. identified in his work that his basic flaw had been what he called his absolute dependence on people and circumstances mm. for security and prestige and the like. What I'm going to be calling that in our shows in the future is emotional dependency. Emotional that's dependency. What Bill called, that's what Bill called absolute dependency. And our emotional dependency was on people or circumstances to validate us. So we thought we were more the more we had approval. Yeah. thought we were more the more we had success <clears throat> circumstances. We thought we were more the more money we had. We thought we were more the more looks we had or the better looks we had. We thought we were more the more, you know, toys we had. And what we're going to be seeing is that emotional sobriety is not about having, it's about being. Well, there you go. Emotional sobriety is not about having, it's about being. So let me ask you a question, listeners, before we close out the show. Are you emotionally dependent on people, places, and things to be comfortable in your own skin? Or are you emotionally sober? 
And regardless of what's going on around you, regardless of what other people are doing, you can lay your head down on your pillow at night and you can be at peace and you can claim emotional sobriety. Hey, listen, everybody, take care during this whole COVID-19 thing. Please watch out for each other. Be good to each other. And until our next broadcast, this is the Monty Man, and I am wishing God's perfect serenity for you. Bye-bye now. This has been a broadcast of KHLT Recovery Broadcasting. She's a super cat, super cat, she's super kitty, meow. Yeah, kitty, 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 meow. <laughs> <laughs>